you have uh, taken it in your hand to save us, to draw us into uh, union with you. And we thank you, God, that once we are in your hand, you will never let us go. And we worship you for that this morning. And we ask that as we open your word, that you would comfort and reassure our souls that we are yours. And that uh, that in knowing can take us from your hand. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we finished our survey of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to go back and talk a little bit about the Davidic covenant. And specifically, we're going to deal with the issue of whether the Davidic covenant was unconditional or not. Um, but as we begin thinking about that, have you ever come to a point in your spiritual life where you are at the end of your ability? Um, have you ever come to a point where you just have no more patience, and no more self-control, no more hope, no more faith? Um, the... Something very similar happened to in that context. Something very similar happened with the Davidic covenant in that way. There came a point in the history of that covenant that it fell apart. Um, and so, the, the, what we're going to be studying today, as we look at the Davidic covenant, whether it was conditional or not, we're not. It's, we're going to. It's going to be kind of an abstract discussion, but there is a relevant spiritual principle there that God uses every day in our lives, um, namely that what God requires, He supplies. God, doesn't re- God requires things of us that we are not capable of performing. He requires us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He has set the bar so high that we have really no hope of being obedient. But the, the, the hope comes from the fact that whatever God requires of us, He also supplies in His grace. And that, that same principle not only is active in our spiritual lives, it's active, and God shows that in the way He fulfilled the Davidic covenant. So that's what we're going to be looking at today is, uh, I already told you a couple weeks ago that I believe the Davidic covenant is unconditional, and that's true, but the answer is not quite that simple. There, it, it's kind of a complicated thing, so we're going to look at that in more detail today. But let's begin by reading a little bit of 2 Samuel 7 again to remind us what that covenant is about. And then we're going to be jumping around looking at various passages that kind of follow the history of that covenant. So 2 Samuel 7. Can I get a volunteer to read verses 10 through 17 of that chapter? Thank you. So as we read that, there's a number of promises there. Um, But what I want to focus on is verse 15. Uh, 
you remember when we were going through this a few weeks ago, that phrase, my loving kindness shall not depart from him, that word loving kindness is a technical term. It's a covenant type of term. And so even though the word covenant is not used in this passage, we understand it's a covenant because of that term and because a little bit later David calls it a covenant in chapter 23. Um, so we know that there's a covenant being established here, but look at the promise. My, my loving kindness, that is the covenant, will not depart from him. So most people read that and they say, well, this covenant is unconditional. God says the covenant is not going to be broken. I'm, it's not going to break. Like I, like I took it away from Saul. Saul sinned, and so his dynasty ended with him. And the kingdom was taken from him and given to David. But that's not going to happen here because God is making a covenant with David. So we read that and we think, well, this is an unconditional covenant. That God is just saying to David that here's the covenant. I'm giving it to you, and nothing's going to take it away. Um, but actually, that's the way we read it, but that's not the way David understood it. Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 2, and let's read a little bit more about what David understood this covenant to mean. We're going to read 1 Kings chapter 2. We're just going to read 1 through 4, so I'll, I'll read that since it's short. Uh, 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. Now, as David's time drew near, his time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what was written in the law of Moses, so that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. And, here's the point, verse 4. And so that the Lord may carry out the promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So, verse four, so, what, is that, so what is David saying to Solomon? Is he saying that this covenant is unconditional and God's going to keep you no matter what you do. You can do whatever you want and behave however you want, and God's not going to turn his mercy from you? Seems like David is, saying, David is understanding that the promise came to him had some conditions to it. Namely, that he had to do what? What, was Solomon, what did Solomon have to do? He had to obey the Lord. He had to follow him. And specifically, what did he have to obey? The law of Moses. So, in other words, the Davidic covenant is under the authority of the Mosaic covenant. Does that make sense? Um, since the Mosaic covenant was first and was for all of the people in Israel, and the Davidic king was part of that country, he, he was under the authority of the Mosaic covenant. He didn't have the authority to break it. Um, and actually, so how did, how did David make that connection? God comes to him and says, my loving kindness, I will never turn away from you like I did Saul. It's not ever going to happen. But when he charges his son, who's going to be the next king, he says, you better obey the law because God, God's going to take it away from you if you don't. Where did, where did David get that idea if he didn't get it in 2 Samuel 7? He, from the example of Saul, partly, because Saul lost his kingdom through disobedience, so that's, that's part of it. He got it from Moses back in Deuteronomy 17. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy 17. And you can see it very clearly there, too. Deuteronomy 
and we're going to look at Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. And I would like a volunteer to offer to read that for us. Yeah, go ahead. So what was the king supposed to do? There was a there's a daily discipline there that the king is supposed to fulfill. Yeah, but not just study it. There's a particular way he's supposed to study it. He's supposed to write it out. He's supposed to go to the temple, and the priests are supposed to give him one of their copies of law, and he's supposed to every day write down verse for verse, letter for letter, word for word, everything that's there. He's supposed to slow down and spend the rest of his life copying word for word everything that's there. Um, which is actually, if, if you do that kind of a spiritual discipline in your study, it really, you understand the word of God deeply because it makes you slow down. Um, so he has a daily discipline. He's supposed to be studying the word of God every day, and he's supposed to be learning it so that he'll fear God. And there's motivation um, to that. Look at verse 20. What's the result of that if he does that? There are a couple of results there. Um, but look at the last one there at the end of the verse. So that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. In other words, you obey the law, you fear God, so that you can have a long kingdom. Which implies what if he doesn't? Then he won't have a long kingdom. So there's so in the Old Testament law, there is there is a hint that that what God is offering the kings there is is similar to what God offered Israel in the law. Obey and live, disobey and die. And for the kings, it was obey, and you can continue to rule. And if you disobey, you won't. And this, that, that one verse in, chapter, in verse 20 there that we just read explains most of the history of the books of First and Second Kings. You have in, in both the northern and southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, they all disobeyed. And so what was happening? Every time somebody died, a new king came, and a new, it was a new dynasty. And there wasn't a long, there wasn't a period of time where son after son after son reigned. It was always switching over because they were all disobedient. And on the other hand, there were in Judah, there were some kings that were okay, they were obedient, and so the, the dynasty lasted. Um, so that, that promise helps make sense of the books of First and Second Kings, but you can see that there, there's a condition there. If the king is obeys, if he obeys, he's going to have a dynasty, and him and his sons will have a long kingdom. So when the, when the promise comes to David in 2 Samuel 7, it sounds unconditional, but David knows from the law that he has to obey to keep it. So on the one hand, we've got, We've got a covenant that is, sounds unconditional but has some conditions to it. So how do we put this together? Those, thing, those things seem to be contradictory to us. It can't be both. Can it? 
can a covenant that God, can a promise that God makes be unconditional and conditional at the same time? Um, from our point of view, no. But from God's point of view, the answer is yes. And I want to try and show you that as we go through the history of this covenant. Um, let's go a little bit ahead to how Solomon related to that promise. Go, go to um, 1 Kings 11. And I'll, I'll do a little bit of the reading here. First Kings 11. We're going to start in verse 1, and then we'll skip down a little bit. First uh, Kings 1, 11. 11, 1. First Kings 11, 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Uh, now skip on down uh, to verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord had said to Solomon, so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So David, or King Solomon, uh, did exactly what Deuteronomy 17 said not to do. He multiplied for himself wives. And you know how many hundreds of wives he had. And they were all, a lot of them were foreign wives. And in order to satisfy his foreign wives, he got set up idols all over the land. And so God comes to him, and says, because you've done this, what's going to happen? I'm going to take away the kingdom from you. Just So the conditions of the Davidic covenant that King David warned him about are now coming true. He did not obey, and now the kingdom's taken away from him. And you can see it's put in terms of the covenant, because you've not kept my covenant. That is, you didn't obey the Old Testament law. This is going to happen to you. But there's going to be mercy there mixed with God's uh, severity. He's not, going to, he's not going to do it in your days. And why is he not going to do it in your days? For the sake of David. And why is, it not going to, why is he not going to tear away the whole kingdom but still give them one tribe? He's going to still rule over the tribe of Judah. Again, it's for the sake of David. What does he mean by that? For the sake of the Davidic covenant, I think is what, what, the way we should read that. He's saying, because I made a promise to David, even though there are these conditions that are in that promise, because I made the promise and I'm not going to take away the mercy, like I said, there's still going to be one tribe, and it's still going to last for, it lasted for 400 years, um, which was actually the longest dynasty in the ancient Near East, was the Davidic dynasty. It lasted for about 400 years. Um, and that was because, why? Because God had made a promise that was unconditional, um, even though there were conditions applied. So you can see both, there's, you can see in this passage, there's both conditions being applied and an unconditional element at the same time, which is really confusing to us, but we're going to try and tie it together in a few minutes. Um, so I hope you can see that both are in the text there. Now let's skip forward a few hundred years, 400 years, to the end of the Davidic line and see um, what happened there. Let's skip over to 2 Kings 25, towards the end of the history.
we'll begin uh, beginning at the first verse of 25, and then we'll, and we'll, then we'll skip down a little bit. Second um, Kings 25.1. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of Zedekiah. Now in the ninth month, in the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night, by way of the gate between the two walls, beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by the way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. Stop right there. So the, 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 the scene that's being said is the king of Babylon has now brought the judgment that God has promised through his prophets on the Davidic line. And they, siege the, they put the siege of the city, and the pressure is so intense that the, that the king actually flees, very much like David fled from Absalom. And he actually, uh, ironically, he's captured in, in a place that's very close to where David left the land when he was fleeing from Absalom. Um, so they, the Chaldeans pursue them about 20 miles to near the, the Jordan River, and they capture the king. And notice that at the end of verse 6, it says they pass sentence on him. And if you know the Davidic covenant, that's quite ironic because it's the Davidic king that is supposed to be the judge of the other kings of the world. It is, that's part of the promise of the Davidic covenant, that he's going to rule the nations. And now the nations are ruling him. So God has taken that Davidic covenant and he's kind of flipped it over in judgment. He's kind of reversed it, as it were, because of those conditions that we talked about. But now look, thinking in terms of the Davidic covenant, read, look, let's read at verse 7. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and brought him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now that detail is not there just to be gross. Um, it's there to make us think of the Davidic covenant. These were, these were the men who were supposed to reign in his place after him if the Davidic covenant was being fulfilled. But now they were slaughtered before his eyes. Why did they do that? To show him that his line was coming to an end. And then they dragged him off and took him to Babylon. So as we track the history of this covenant as it develops, we see that, that God brought the, that even though the promise set, when he sent it to David, he said, I'll not take my loving kindness from you. Um, at the same time he said that, there were conditions that, that they were meant to fulfill. They had to obey the law to keep their kingdom. And you can see from the history that they couldn't do it. It was too high a standard for any man to fulfill. I mean, we, we shouldn't you know, blame these kings that they did these things because we would have done the same thing. The Old Testament law is not something that we have the ability to fulfill either, um, just like those kings could. Um, but now, now we've got this, this, the promise of God, though, has come, it, it, it seems to all, to all circumstances, to all humanly eyes, it seems that the promises of God have failed. Have you ever come to a point in your spiritual life where it looks like God doesn't keep his word? Where everything around you is falling apart and it looks like, where are you, God? You know, that, that's exactly where the nation of Israel was, and that's exactly where the Davidic line was. They were, at a, they were at a point where, where is God, and where is his word? He said he would keep his word. Where is it? And it's in that context that the prophet Jeremiah is writing. Let's turn over to Jeremiah 23. Um, Jeremiah, of course, lived during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he was the prophet that God had to warn them, to give them that final warning. 
before the city was destroyed and the king was captured and taken away to Babylon. And this is what he says about the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah 23. And we're going to start reading in verse 4. Now, in the context of all of this destruction, this is, amazing, this is an amazing promise. I'm sorry. I think my, my this is the wrong one. Well, yeah, we'll start here. We'll look at chapter 33 in a minute. Um, Jeremiah 23, verse 4 and following. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified. Nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the, they will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led his, back his descendants from the household of Israel, from the north land and all the countries where I have driven them. Um, so I want to show you here just who it is. Um, there's a, in the context of the destruction of the Davidic covenant, and, it, and it's coming to a complete end, in the context of all of that, Jeremiah makes a promise that there's coming a man who's called the righteous branch. Uh, and that's an interesting picture. Isaiah, Isaiah pictures the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, like a tree that's been cut down. Um, like, a, like a tree, that, like an oak tree or something that's been cut down and has fallen over. That's what's happened to the Davidic covenant. God has chopped it down. But you know that when you chop down a tree, the root doesn't always die. And so next spring you might have a little sprout pick up out of that root or stick up out of, out of, the, out of the ground. That's what, that's what Jesus is being called here. He's being called the righteous branch. He's, Isaiah calls him the sprout. You know, because out of, that, out of that tree that's been toppled over, out of that promise that looks like it's failed because of our sin, because of the sin of human pe people, there's going to be a sprout spring up. And, he, and that sprout is called the, the right, a righteous branch. Um, and look at what he's going to do. He's going to reign as king. He's going to act wisely. He's going to do justice in the land. So he's going to fulfill the law is what that means. He's going to do the righteousness, and he's going to do the justice that no one else could do. He's going to fulfill what God said. But look at his name in verse 6. This is, who it, what do they call him? The Lord our righteousness. The Davidic king, a human man, is going to be named the Lord our righteousness. Now, reading that in light of the New Testament, we know exactly what that means. Of course, back to them, that must have been very confusing. How can you call a man the Lord? But we know that through the incarnation, the Lord did come as a Davidic king. And so his name is the Lord, our righteousness. That's, that's what we can call Jesus as we read the book of Romans. The Lord is our righteousness. Um, so what is he saying there? He's giving us a hint about how, how, the, how the Davidic covenant, even though it, they had to obey the law, they couldn't do it. It was too high a standard for them. How, how that promise can be unconditional. How can that promise be unconditional if it depends on us to do it? Well, it can't. But if it depends on God to do it, it can be. What God is requiring of them, he himself is going to come personally and do it. The Lord, our righteousness, is going to come and reign over us in justice. That's how this promise can be, at the same time, be conditional 
It has to be fulfilled. But at the same time, God can think of it as unconditional. Why? Because he intends personally to fulfill those conditions. He's going to come himself, and he's going to take care of it. What failed through human sin, God himself is going to do. And we're going to call him the Lord our righteousness. Uh, but Jeremiah doesn't stop there. He, he adds more to it, to that in, in chapter 33. This is Jeremiah 33. We're going to start in verse 14. Behold, their days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and Judah. That good word, as we'll see, is, is the Davidic covenant. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Note that the, note that the she there is Jerusalem. This is the, you know, the same kind of promise that we just read, but now the people of God are going to be called the Lord our righteousness. That is because they've been joined to this Davidic king. So, um, so the same righteousness that he has, he's going to share with the people, in other words. Um, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is where the covenant it shows to be unconditional, verse 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne with the Levitical priests and ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and as the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister. So when, when did God make a covenant with the day and the night? When did God say that day and night are never going to stop and they'll always continue? In Genesis, when? After the flood. Do you remember that? When, when Moses came out of the ark and offered the sacrifices, God put the rainbow in the sky and he said, um, winter and summer, springtime and harvest, and day and night are never going to stop. And this is the sign. Here's the rainbow. I'm putting my battle bow in the sky and hanging it up so that I'm never going to make war like this again on the people and, and destroy the world with a flood. So here's the question. Does that, the covenant that God made with Noah, does that depend on our obedience to fulfill it? Of course not. This is God making a promise unconditionally. He's saying, I don't care what you do. I'm never going to flood the earth again. Now, of course, the, he, he isn't implying in that he's going to do something else later. He's going to burn it, but he's going to burn it all down. But for now, there's not going to be a flood until the appointed time. But that covenant is absolutely unconditional in, in every way. There's nothing that, that people can do to thwart that. God has just said, day and night are going to continue until the end of the world. Um, and here he's, he's comparing the Davidic covenant to that. He's saying, if you can break the Noahic covenant, then you could break the Davidic covenant. In God's mind, the Davidic covenant is just as unconditional as the Noahic one. That's how amazing. And remember that Jeremiah is writing this when the city of Jerusalem is burning in front of him. When King Zedekiah is being, having his eyes gouged out and being drunk off 
in bonds to serve a foreign king. All of that is going, that's what's in the headlines. If you turn on CNN, you're watching the smoke rise from Jerusalem. You're seeing children starving in the streets because they don't have any food, because the city's under siege. That's what's in the headlines. That's what's on the news. That's what's right in front of you. And with all of that destruction surrounding them, with everything around them looking like, where is God? God comes and says, if you can break the covenant with Noah, then you can break my covenant with Abraham. Meaning, it's going to last forever no matter what. And we've already been given the reason why. Because God himself is going to come personally in the form of a Davidic king, and he's going to make it happen. He is going to see to it that his word never, ever fails. He's going to, he is going to, well, the conditions that he demands, the law that he requires, he's going to do it for us. That's the promise of the Davidic covenant, and that's the promise of the new covenant. Um, turn over to Romans chapter 8, and we'll see how the same, the same principle that God uses to fill the Davidic covenant, God uses every day in your spiritual life. And I'll ask a volunteer to read. Uh, Romans 8, 1 through 4. So we can rest. We have, we have rest in God because even though the righteous requirements of God haven't changed, God still demands perfect holiness. There's no condemnation for us. And what's the reason given in the text for that? Why, why is it that even though I mean, we're not under the law like the Old Testament saints were, but we're still demanded by God to be righteous and, and perfectly holy? How is it that there's no condemnation? I, I mean, I fail every day to do that. But what did Christ do? Look at verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So there's two reasons. Um, verse 3, what the law couldn't do because it was weak through our flesh, God did. Notice that. These, the, the, law, the oppressive weight of God's righteous requirements that we can't do, God did when he sent his son. And Jesus fulfilled that for us. That's why it was necessary for Jesus to live a sinless life before his death. He was fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law for all of those that would have faith in him. He did it for us. So his death and resurrection show that the law has been fulfilled. The reason we're not under the law anymore is because Jesus fulfilled it for us. That contract is paid in full. You know, when you, when you pay off your car, the bank doesn't come and um, repossess it well, because it's been paid off. So the same, thing is, the same thing with the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law has been paid off. Jesus did it in his life and death and in his resurrection on the cross. It's been done. It's been paid for. But not only did Jesus do that on the cross he, and pay for it so that we're not under the law anymore, 
He sent his spirit into our lives so that every single day the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us. And that's what he says in verse 4. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us when we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the glorious news of the gospel, is that what God requires of us, he has given to us. And he gives it to us every single day when his spirit comes and lives in our, in our hearts. So it may look like, you know, you may, it may look like, I just can't do this anymore. I don't have any more patience. I don't have any more hope. I don't have any more strength to obey you. This temptation is too severe. This trial is too great. I don't have anything less. Good. Because now you can depend on God's spirit. There's a reason why God brings us to a point in our spiritual life where we have nothing left so that we'll depend on his spirit, so that we'll stop trying on our own strength after the flesh. Because what can the flesh do? Just transgress the law more. I mean, the only thing I can do in my flesh is get more wrath and condemnation. But thanks be to God that I don't have to do it in my own strength. God has given his spirit into our hearts so that as we walk by the spirit, whatever strength God is requiring of you today, whether it's more patience, whether it's more faith, whether it's more self-control, whether it's more gentleness, whether it's whatever it is that God is asking from you, His grace is sufficient for that. Whatever, whatever burden is on you, He has given you what you need to fulfill it. Whatever God is requiring of you, He's done it. That's the hope of the new covenant, is that what God requires, He gives. And that's an amazing truth. Um, we are ending a little bit early this morning, so... Do y'all have any questions about anything? Second, anything in Second Samuel, or as you've been saving up for a few weeks? I've been talking a lot. Do y'all have any questions about this? If not, we'll just end a little bit early. Well, then let's pray. Father God, the 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 glories of your word overwhelm us. So often we are burdened um, by the trials and circumstances of our lives, God, but we rest in the fact that you have, you've fulfilled it for us. Thank you, God, for your grace, the grace that is greater than anything that we, um, anything that comes to us in life, anything that we do. Thank you, God, that your strength is sufficient for our needs. And you do this, Lord, for your glory and for your name's sake. And so we worship you today in Christ's name. Amen.